This podcast is supported by the Icon School of Medicine at Mount Sinai, one of America's leading research medical schools. Icon Mount Sinai is the academic arm of the eight-hospital Mount Sinai Health System in New York City. It's consistently among the top recipients of NIH funding. Researchers at Icon Mount Sinai have made breakthrough discoveries in many fields vital to advancing the health of patients, including cancer, COVID, and long COVID, cardiology, neuroscience, and artificial intelligence. The Icon School of Medicine at Mount Sinai. We find a way. This week's episode is brought to you in part by the Nomis and Science Young Explorer Award. Are you doing excellent research that deserves recognition? The Nomis and Science Young Explorer Award recognizes bold young researchers who ask fundamental questions at the intersection of the life and social sciences. Researchers who take risks to address relevant and exciting questions with creative approaches, regardless of the research outcome. Submissions are due May 15th. Visit science.org slash nomis, that's N-O-M-I-S, to apply today. Welcome to the Science Podcast for March 12, 2021. I'm Sarah Crespi. Each week, we feature the most interesting news and research published in Science and the Sister Journals. First up, news staff writer Adrian Cho joins us to talk about big plans for the next generation of gravitational wave detectors, including one with 40-kilometer-long arms. Then I talk with researcher Pavani Chirakupali about her science advances paper on cleaning up oil spills with special cold-adapted sponges that work well when crude oil gets clumpy. Now we have staff news writer Adrian Cho. He's going to talk about some big plans for the next generation of gravitational wave detectors. Hi, Adrian. Hi, Sarah. How are you? Oh, I'm good. And I don't even know where to start with a story on, you know, which part is the most mind-blowing. Most of us have heard of LIGO by now. This is the gravitational wave detector or a pair of them based in the U.S. and Virgo based in Europe. But there are plans in the works to make detectors that are 10 times more sensitive in both the U.S. and Europe. Adrian, what could we see or I guess hear with a detector that's 10 times more sensitive than what's currently online? The potential is pretty mind-bending. Gravitational waves are these ripples in space itself, this sort of oscillating stretching that set off when things like massive black holes spiral into each other at half the speed of light or a pair of neutron stars spiral together and blow up in what's known as a kilonova explosion. And LIGO and Virgo have, over the last five years, seen dozens of black hole mergers and spotted two neutron star mergers. And it's been spectacularly fruitful scientifically. But if researchers can go to detectors that are 10 times more sensitive, then they can do amazing things like detect a million black hole mergers per year, all the way out to the edge of the observable universe, which is 45 billion light years away. And since looking out in space is looking back in time, they'd be looking all the way back to the age when the very first stars formed and beyond, and they would be able to detect every black hole merger in the observable universe. And they would see hundreds or thousands of neutron star mergers. So the potential is really pretty mind-boggling. How do you get a gravitational wave detector that's 10 times more sensitive? 
How about just making it 10 times bigger? Yes. So there are two approaches and two ideas for the next generation detector. One of them, called Cosmic Explorer, is being developed by researchers in the United States. And it essentially takes the detectors that they have in LIGO and just makes them 10 times bigger. And so the way a gravitational wave detector works is it's this big L-shaped optical instrument called an interferometer. And you've got light bouncing back and forth between mirrors in either arm. And some of that light leaks out and it interferes and it can go in one of two directions, sort of at the corner, depending on the relative lengths of the arms. What happens is if a gravitational wave comes by, in general, it will stretch one arm more than the other. So you'll get this warbling interference signal coming out of one of the ports of the interferometer. And that light signal will warble in time with the passing gravitational wave. But you know, you're trying to detect this tiny, tiny difference in the lengths of these gigantic interferometers. It is a tiny fraction of the width of an atom that the spacing of the mirrors moves. And the arms right now in LIGO are four kilometers each, and we're talking they're going to detect a difference that's subatomic. Yes. Let's go bigger. Let's get a bigger arm. Does that get us a smaller difference detection? The actual distance between the mirrors increases 10 times more, 10 times longer arms. You get 10 times more signal from the passing gravitational wave. The gravitational waves are so feeble that that signal will still be a tiny fraction of the width of an atom. Right away, you want to know where are you going to put 40 kilometers of arms? Right. And that's a tricky question because the arms have to be literally laser straight. They can't be flat to the ground. They have to be laser straight. So if you try to put this thing on the earth in some place that looks nice and flat like Illinois, if the center of the L is on the ground, the ends of the L would be 30 meters in the air. So you'd have to build these giant berms to hold them up. Researchers in the United States are actually looking for natural basins where the middle might be lower than the ends where they could stick these things, maybe out west somewhere. They're hoping that they'll have these things built mid-2030s when the current LIGO detectors probably have reached the limit of what they can do That's the U.S. side of things. Much bigger L's that will be about 10 times bigger. And then another plan that is kind of further along is going to be based in Europe. And it's not an L at all. Yeah, it's uh, this gravitational wave observatory known as Einstein Telescope. And it's really different. So the interferometer has to have basically equal length arms, but that angle doesn't have to be 90 degrees. It just has to be big enough. What they're thinking of doing is building this triangular observatory that would have an interferometer in each point. So it would have three interferometers forming this equilateral triangle. The interferometers would not be as big as the ones in Cosmic Explorer. They would be 10 kilometers long, but you would have three of them, and they would point in different directions, obviously. And the whole thing would be built in tunnels 100 meters underground to help shield it from vibrations. They would get roughly a factor of three in sensitivity from Virgo, which is what they have now by increasing the length. But they would actually do some other things to improve their sensitivity. 
they don't add together the three sides of the triangle and say these are the length of the arms, but then they're going to be able to get a direction, a better sense of where things are coming from. It turns out that gravitational waves, I mean, they're a bit like light waves in that they have a polarization and you can't get that polarization from just one detector. If you have more than one detector pointed in different directions, you can get the polarization. And once you know the polarization, that actually helps you locate sources on the sky. But like I say, they don't get the full factor of 10 in sensitivity from the size. So they do some other things. I mean, one of them is this building it underground to help tamp down vibrational noise from seismic waves on the surface. Another is that if three interferometers was good, six will be even better. So what they actually are proposing is to build two interferometers in each of the points of this thing. And one of them would run with a high power laser. The higher power laser would help cut down on the noise for higher gravitational wave frequencies. But at the same time, for lower frequencies, they want to press down to even lower frequencies than LIGO or Virgo or Cosmic Explorer can detect. And to do that, they would install in each point a second interferometer that would use a low power laser, but it would use mirrors that are cooled to near absolute zero. And that would help them cut down the noise on the low frequency side. The reason they want to do this separation into two interferometers, one for higher frequencies, one for lower frequencies, is that some of the measures that you take to tamp down noise at high frequencies, like increasing the laser power, actually create more noise at low frequencies. And so you end up with these contradictory needs that they feel they can better satisfy with two interferometers. So all told, they would have an ensemble of six V-shaped 10 kilometer per arm interferometers all housed in this really wild looking equilateral triangle 100 meters underground. Now, is the timeline for this one projected to be into the 2030s as well? It's roughly the same time, although this project has been in the works longer than the American one. The Europeans have been thinking about this design since way back in 2004. So it's a little bit more mature. They are hoping to get on this roadmap for large scientific infrastructure projects in Europe that gets updated every couple of years. And they're hoping that this summer they will be put on it. It's not a full approval for construction. It's just the first step. I remember hearing about a space-based detector called LISA. Is that still a live proposal out there? Yes, LISA is very much alive. And I think many physicists think is a really important and very exciting project. LISA actually looks a bit like Einstein telescope in that it's going to be a big triangular interferometer that's up in space, but it's going to be much, much bigger than anything on the ground. It's actually going to look for much lower frequency gravitational waves. The black hole sources that LIGO and Virgo have seen are so-called stellar mass black holes. These are things that, as far as we know, form when really massive stars collapse and they leave behind literally just their gravitational field. And that forms this black hole. And it turns out it has a mass, even though it's just pure gravity. But the ones they see have masses ranging sort of between five and 100 times the mass of the sun. LISA would be looking at so-called supermassive black holes and looking for stars and other black holes falling into these black holes that weigh millions or billions of times 
as much as the sun and are in the hearts of galaxies. And when something falls into a black hole that big, it produces a much lower frequency signal, factor of 100 times slower. LISA would be able to see that. The ground-based detectors can't see that. The two will be very much complementary. One more thing about LISA. How much bigger would the arms be? Uh, the arm length is truly astronomical. It's 2.5 million kilometers. So it's <laughs> far, far bigger than anything uh, you can put on Earth. And LISA will be at one of the so-called Lagrange points. This is a point in space that's relatively stationary if you draw a line from the sun to the Earth. So as the Earth goes around, the Lagrange points go around in this sort of fixed orientation relative to the Earth. And uh, LISA will be a big triangle, and it's actually going to execute this, this very complicated tumbling motion. The triangle is actually going to turn as the Earth goes around the sun. Amazing. Yeah, it's going to be just spectacular. <laughs> so. Unbelievably, this is also scheduled for the 2030s. Yes, that's one of the reasons why people want new ground-based detectors in the 2030s, because they want to run these things together so they have complementarity. As is always the case in big science, I think if you told this community, well, it won't be till 2040 that you get a new machine, I don't think they would stamp their feet and go home. They would be perfectly happy to get the next big thing when it can happen. But the sort of conceptual goal right now is to push to have these things going at the same time that Lisa goes up. We're talking about some of these are 10 kilometers on a side, some 40, some 2.5 million kilometers. Do we have any idea about the cost of these detectors? Let's just talk about the ground-based ones for the moment because uh, Lisa is this big international collaboration. But the folks building Cosmic Explorer they say it's a, a billion-dollar class facility. So, you know, ballparkish is a billion dollars to build one of these things. They're hoping to keep the cost down, and that's why they've gone for this conceptually simple approach of just making a much bigger detector, because they're hoping to build more than one of them to establish a kind of network of these next-generation detectors. The Einstein Telescope team is farther along. They have a rough cost estimate. They say that the whole thing can be built for about 1.7 billion euros, and that includes 900 million euros for the tunneling and the ventilation and the other basic infrastructure for the tunnel complex. And they're really going for establishing this as a kind of infrastructure for future generations of gravitational wave detectors. They envision that this thing will have a lifetime of at least 50 years. They start with this one configuration of these six interferometers, and as the science changes and improves, as new technologies come online, they would just use the same underground facility to house the, the coming generations of detectors. All right. Thank you so much, Adrian. My pleasure, Sarah. Adrian Cho is a staff writer for Science. You can find a link to the story we discussed at sciencemag.org slash podcast. There have been many oil spills in cold climates, and getting chili crude out of the water has been a big challenge. Stay tuned for my interview with Pavani Cherukupali about a new sponge that works across a range of temperatures. Before we get to the next part of the show, I'd like you to consider subscribing to News from Science. Every week, we share stories from our news site, News from Science. 
science journalists and editors kindly come on here and tell a story for our ears that they've been spending sometimes weeks or even months reporting and writing. If we were counting, our award-winning journalists publish as many as 20 stories a week, from tracking policy to investigations, international science news, and yes, when we find new secrets about mummies, we report on that too. It's an unbelievably valuable service. If you were here with us during early COVID days, you must have heard how plugged in and devoted our news team truly is. Please consider supporting nonprofit science journalism by becoming a subscriber for around 50 cents a week. To subscribe, go to science.org news, scroll down a little bit, and click subscribe on the right side. That's science.org news, scroll down a little bit, click subscribe on the right side. The Exxon Valdez oil spill off the coast of Alaska back in 1989 was one of the most environmentally damaging spills in the world. You probably remember pictures of oil-covered wildlife. You know, it's tough to clean up a bird. It's tough to clean up this particular part of the planet. It's very inaccessible. And also, getting oil out of cold water is not easy. Oil acts differently at different temperatures. This week in Science Advances, Pavani Terakopali and colleagues write about a new temperature-sensitive way to soak up crude oil. Hi, Pavani. Hi, Sada. Is there a big difference uh, in what you need to do to get oil out of warm water versus cold water? At low temperatures, crude oil is more viscous, meaning like a honey, very thick. So that's why it is difficult to remove. Maybe this is just, you know, from bias I've seen in the news, but are oil spills more common in cold places? It depends on the geography. For example, Canada has the largest unconventional oil reserves. The temperature is also very cold. The oil spill problem can have a like, more adverse impact. Similarly, Arctic has estimated 13% undiscovered oil reserves. So we are not at all prepared to address the oil spills in that region. Last year in May, there was a huge oil spill with about 17,500 tons of crude oil released into the environment. In the Arctic? Yes. In 2014, ExxonMobil also started extracting crude oil in Arctic. Was your goal here with this work to make something that soaked up oil specifically in cold environments? Uh, yes. In colder environments, the cleaning oil spills is a lot more challenging than warmer environments. So I was trying to look into developing a more cost-efficient way of cleaning these spills. This is targeted to colder environments, parts of Canada and in the Arctic, where it seems like there'll be more oil drilling in the future. Do you think that oil spills are inevitable? Of course, there are many standards. Companies don't want to like lose their product as well. But I think there is no 100% guarantee that it wouldn't happen in the future. But having a, like more effective mitigation strategies and cleaning technologies that could reduce the impact of oil spills on the environment. Is that what inspired you to do this work? No, actually, <laughs> I got into this colder environment because I was motivated by Kerstin Langenberger's image about emaciated polar bear. It was too painful to see. Usually we see polar bears as like a big, playful and beautiful but she has showed alternative version of a 
thin-looking, hungry, looking for food. And one of the reasons to that, people think it is climate change. And I did not have background to address climate change problem. But I had background in industrial oil wastewater reclamation. So I directed my research towards extreme cold environments. So I thought maybe I could address Arctic oil spills. So you came up with this sponge that works in very low temperatures. Does it work in a range of temperatures or do you have to use a zero degree sponge, a five degree sponge? Does it change itself with the changing temperature? This is my second version of the sponge. My first version of sponge, it would work very well above 40 degrees Celsius. But when it comes to like about five degrees Celsius, which is the normal temperature what we see in marine environments, then it would work, but the kinetics are very slow. That's why it is more energy expensive to clean such oil spills. Yeah, I read you said that sometimes people would heat up the oil on the water in order to get it to move into sponges or to be able to collect it. Yes, that is not sustainable. It would cause further adverse effect on the environment. So what does your sponge that you're talking about in this paper do? At first, we don't know how crude oil behaves in the cold environment. At the surface level, we can see its viscosity increases, but we don't actually know what what is the causality for crude oil behaving in such a way. I studied what is specifically happening to crude oil when it goes to these low temperatures. What I found is that crude oil microstructure changes because the heavier compounds from the crude oil precipitate at low temperature conditions and they change its uh, surface microstructure. I tailored my sponge according to this microstructure so that it can recover or capture and remove crude oil at low temperatures in addition to high temperatures. My current version of the sponge, it can work from 5 degrees Celsius to 40 degrees Celsius. It matches up with what happens with the oil as the oil changes temperature? Yes. So how, how big are the sponges? The sponge itself is commercially available. So is it the size of my hand or the size of a car? It can be even the size of the car. Like <laughs> when we buy from the company, they are that big, but I cut it into a two inch by two inch size for laboratory experiments. But how would you use it in the field? We plan to use sponge packed columns. We can just push through the water through the column and collect clean water. And then what happens when you put a sponge in water with oil on it? Because of the similar properties, the sponge would collect the crude oil, but repel the water. So all the oil droplet would have preference for the sponge rather than the water. That's how we catch all the droplets. And then what do you squeeze it out? Yes, I know because the oil is very thick and it is sticks to the sponge. So it is not easy to recover by simple squeezing. What I did is I used a non-toxic solvent. And with that solvent, what we can do is captured oil can be dissolved within seconds. And we can collect both crude oil and solvent mixture. The other benefit of this is because when oil is viscous, we cannot flow it. But having this solvent added to it, it makes it flow. It makes it easy to transport as well. So you would take your sponges, soak up that crude oil, bring them back, squeeze slash solvent to remove the oil, and then you deploy your sponges again? Yes. In this specific case, we're not trying to put it on the water surface because 
that technology is already very well established. What I am trying to do is capture those very difficult, tiny oil droplets that are mixed with the water column. So this is not the stuff that's kind of joined up in a big bloopy mess on the surface. It's rather in suspension. Yes. Oh, very cool. So that's why you said it was a column of sponges? Yes. Huh. And then you can put those sponges back out there? Yes. That's the strategy. In your study, how many times were you able to do that? I tested it for 10 cycles. And for 10 cycles, it was consistently performing without any degradation in performance. Now, you mentioned this is specifically tailored to these small droplets in the water. Uh, What percentage of a spill ends up in those droplets? It depends on the location. For example, in marine environment, because the turbulence is a lot more higher because of the water waves, so the oil can break into tiny droplets fairly quickly. Whereas in rivers and other groundwater systems, we don't have that much wave energy. There are differences between the different types of crude oil. Depending on where it's sourced, it's going to have different fractions, different components. Can you make a sponge that will work well with a particular oil in a particular temperature setting? Yeah, that's the bigger goal for this project. Now that we have the scientific insights, how a specific crude oil would behave with temperature, what we're trying to do is we would study different crude oils And depending on their microstructures, tailor the sponge. Why did you go down this path of using sponges to do this work? There are many solutions, but they are not economically viable to use quick to operate when oil spill happens. So I wanted to have a solution that is both economically feasible as well as perform effectively to clean up oil spills so that both industry can work sustainably as well as we can protect our environment. Pavani Chirakupali is a researcher at Imperial College London and the University of Toronto. You can find a link to this science advances study at sciencemag.org slash podcast. And that concludes this edition of the Science Podcast. If you have any comments or suggestions for the show, write to us at sciencepodcast at aaas.org. You can listen to the show on the science website at sciencemag.org slash podcast. On the site, you'll find links to the research and news discussed in the episode. And of course, you can subscribe anywhere you get your podcasts. The show was edited and produced by Sarah Crespi with production help from Podigy, Megan Cantwell, and Joel Goldberg. Transcripts are by Scribby, and Jeffrey Cook composed the music. On behalf of Science Magazine and its publisher, AAAS, thanks for joining us. You listen to us to hear about new discoveries in science, but did you know we're a part of the American Association for the Advancement of Science? AAAS is a nonprofit publisher and a science society. When you join AAAS, you help support our mission to advance science for the benefit of all. Become a AAAS member at the silver level or above to receive a year's subscription to science and an exclusive gift. Join today by visiting AAAS.org join. That's A-A-A-S dot join.